Hello, I'm Ben Eshmade, and welcome to another edition of the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields podcast. In the previous episode, we joined journalist Helen Wallace and the world-renowned pianist Murray Pariah discussing the first three of Beethoven's piano concertos. I want to concentrate on the structure. I want to concentrate on the emotions. I want to concentrate on those things that speak to us today. This time, we pick up where we left off, turning our attention to what many regard as Beethoven's greatest piano concerto, number four, and his most popular, the mighty Emperor Concerto, number So the fourth concerto was written in 1805 and it was completed almost at the same time as the Violin Concerto, the Fourth Symphony, the Razumovsky Quartets and, and the Fifth Symphony, which of course there is a kind of relationship between these two. In the Fifth Symphony... The uh, tune is by the way, it's four notes. Not the, people say the tune of the fifth symphony is da 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 da. It's not true. With a long fermata there, because it bears relation to the second theme. It's exactly the same. The the rhythm permeates the fourth concerto as if to show that this rhythm can be both dramatic, as in the symphony, and peaceful and lyrical in the concerto. The same rhythm. And somehow this rhythm animates the whole concerto, the whole first movement, that is. For me, it's perhaps the greatest concerto that, that Beethoven wrote, although I love the emperor as well. He goes in a different sphere than the early concertos. It has a freedom, it has I don't know, a chromaticism, it has a poetic spirit, is is not approached in the early concertos. And it has a new relationship between the orchestra and the soloist, doesn't it? How how would you characterize that? It becomes uh, they become equals in a way. The piano accompanies the strings as much as the strings accompany the piano. It's very shared. The themes are completely shared between them. Each is important. Every note is un- inventive. And of course, it, it has that sleight of hand that it, it, it starts in the wrong key. They answer the phrase of the piano. The piano has the antecedent phrase uh, and the orchestra follows it. They suggest B major as opposed to G major. But, you know, it's only a sleight of hand. It's only a, a kind of special nuance because it immediately goes back to to G major, but it's a beautiful idea. It's so strange and yet so touching. the second subject has a very different character it it has a more galvanizing rhythmic character doesn't it because it's it's in the minor it is more dramatic in a way it gives variety and moods to this piece so that it travels through many different moods and the development section is extraordinary it goes to completely different keys Mm -hmm. 
then of course we come to the the slow movement, this andante con moto, an extraordinary dialogue. As you know, Owen Jander has suggested that this is a journey, this is Orpheus's journey into the underworld. But is that something that you find useful? To be perfectly honest, yes, I do find it useful. I think it can be stretched a little bit far, but I think it's important that Gluck's opera, Orpheus and Eurydice, was premiered at that time. It had performances, premiered not, but it had performances at that time. I think there is a relationship very much in the slow movement. I'll even go further and say that Perhaps the first movement in the the way the piano and the orchestra interplay, I think the first movement also depicts Orpheus. And certainly that scale at the beginning, the way one would gently put the hand of the lyre, I think evokes what music can do. I think that's what Orpheus is about, the power of music, the power of music to transform the soul. And the soul can be dark and in hell with the darkest forces affecting it. And still music can lift it up and somehow release it. But at the very end, and I think that is also depicted by Beethoven, again, it might be reading too much into it, but nevertheless, there's this trill, uh, a D-sharp diminished chord, and then you see the thing sort of disappearing. And she's gone. You feel she's gone. And he has to leave without her. Now, the idea that music can have an extra musical relationship was in Beethoven's time. In fact, Beethoven wanted to, through Czerny, talk about all his sonatas, all of them, in a programmatic way. He gave up that idea because then he thought that would force people's imagination and they have to be free when they listen to music to make their own associations. I think when you see the romantics afterwards, if you read Schumann's criticisms, if you read um, Liszt, they all had programmatic ideas. According to Schumann, so did Chopin when he wrote the ballads and probably other pieces as well. That's not to say that you can't hear the music without programmatic um, references the, the composers did use that as inspiration yes and then we come to the Rondo Vivace it's said that there's there's a joke that he, he sets up a, a little tune that actually the pianist can't play because you can't play repeated notes that quickly on one note 
And so when the pianist comes in, he decorates it, he elaborates it to, to make it easier to play. It's ornamented by the same notes that end the second movement. The same note except the F sharp is changed to an F natural. And so the, he makes that connection between the sort of giving in to the sad fate of the second movement to something hopeful that music can, maybe not that particular case, but can throughout enliven the spirits and take away the bad, the bad feelings. So here we come to the, the Emperor Concerto, not named by Beethoven, obviously, as the Emperor. In this concerto, there's a very heroic quality, and it would appear that the piano soloist has become the hero. Yes, absolutely. Beethoven was obsessed with heroism. Even Napoleon, he was obsessed. He dedicated at the beginning the Eroica Symphony to Napoleon and then scratched it out when Napoleon took over Vienna. His idea was that somehow a composer was a conqueror as well. One can't forget the impulses of the French Revolution. This was very important to him. And he tried to somehow equate that or make that possible with his own political ideas. We're not quite sure what they were, but he dedicated so many pieces to the Archduke Rudolf that it seems to me that he wanted somebody intelligent as a ruler. That person rule, not just the mob. Uh, he was worried about the mob as, as in Germany they were uh, and in Vienna they were. And so he wanted to welcome the democratic spirit, but he was not 100% a Democrat either, I, I think. And I think he, he, he felt that th there had to be checks on democracy, that you just couldn't have it uh, willy-nilly. So I think this was a difficult political problem that he was facing, but th that he wanted to address it in his music, especially with the heroic spirit, which he felt was necessary for people to have ideals, heroic ideals, and cultivate the heroic spirit. So I think it's quite conscious, this heroism. thing I would say is that he's more using motives. Um, certain motives dominate that piece, and he'll pl play them in different keys. And this is his way of unifying difficult movements where change is quite important, building up in the development. There are certain motivic connections that it has to the beginning of the piece that it never loses. That rhythm, dum trillium pum pum goes through the whole whole movement. I was going to say, well, talking about the assertion, would you say it was the sort of concerto that that spawned the great romantic concertos in the sense the Grieg, the, the Schumann, 
the Tchaikovsky, did they owe a debt? Probably. This heroic spirit was not really obvious in concertos before the um, Emperor Concerto, although Mozart has great heroism, let's say, in the C major concerto, the big 503, that is heroic, but not to the scale that this is. Um, this really glorifies the hero, yes. But having said that, the, the second subject, this little ticking minor key, I think it's that tinkling quality, which at the time must have been almost sounded like a toy piano. Yeah, Beethoven starts uh, with these high... Uh, textures at the top of the keyboard, which he continues into his late period. It's very a significant part of his late period. Opus one eleven has all this, um, for lack of a better word, tink- tinkling. But I think it gets closer to heaven through this tinkling. It gets closer to above, and he used that the contrasts of, uh, of registers so that you get the very earthy low register contrasted with this heavenly upper register. It's something he consciously made use of. Uh, He started at that time, it's in the Wallstein Sonata as well, and then went into all the later music, which he exploited very much. And then the second movement in this wonderful key of B major that arrives, um, Czerny said it was based on pilgrim hymns. What did he mean by that? I think just the hymnal quality. I get the feeling, personally, of nature, of being close to nature, of finding the essence of nature. And poems, strangely enough, by Wordsworth suggest this mood to me, uh, the beginning of romantic uh, poetry, it seems. Maybe I'm all wet on this, but that's my feeling. about that unique transition, that passage of transition from the slow movement into the rondo? It's a very beautiful passage. The The piano is getting lower and lower. It was in the high register, and the song is stopping. And then a low horn takes a B-flat. The piano takes the theme of the last movement, but in a completely different atmosphere, a transfigured atmosphere, not one of activity at all. The ghostly don suggesting the last movement, and then the last movement begins uh, with, I think, great jubilation, great rhythm, forte. Uh, I sometimes play an extra octave there. It's a, tri- a triumphal moment.
that theme in the in the last movement, I I always feel there are just too many notes in it. It's a great challenge, isn't it, to to clarify that theme? Perhaps, perhaps. I don't think Beethoven wrote ever an extra note. So um, it's what, yeah, well, it's what Mozart said to the Archduke, um, just as many notes as is necessary, sir, when the Archduke complained that he wrote too many notes. But I think very often notes are written to suggest motion, to suggest tension and power and all these kind of energy. There's a lot of energy in Beethoven's music. And that comes through these many notes. The the piano has all this energetic um, passage playing that really helps to suggest the fest, not only festive, but active mood of the movement. At the same time, you do want to slightly push ahead because pushing ahead, in a way, makes the music dance more. And so if you play that it's not quite good enough. <laughs> and again, this, what, there were wonderful things in this last movement. I'm, one of my particular favourites is where the horn keeps setting off on a new key yes. and then the pianist responds That's right. every time. At least three established keys, uh, quite far away. And again, quite high up in the piano. And the piano's dancing the whole time. The various instruments of the orchestra suggest different keys and the piano dances to them. recognized absolutely at the time that this was the most original, most inventive, most effective, but also most difficult of all existing concertos. That was a review in the Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung. I, I do think it's very difficult, but then again, I think every piece is very difficult, and I even have problems with the second concerto. So, uh, yeah, everything is difficult. And we know that he performed them with conductor, in fact, in one, in one case, Haydn conducted. You'll be doing it from the piano, what are the challenges of this approach? And, it, and is it critical that you, you know the members of this orchestra so well? Very critical. I mean, for instance, in the fourth concerto, I don't conduct the slow movement at all. Tomu, the first violinist, directs it from, from the violin stand so that it's, it is two people. Having said that, the challenges of it are somewhat improved in some ways and somewhat uh, more difficult in other ways without a conductor. The improvement is sometimes that it's like chamber music. Since I know them very well, the Academy, and have played many tours with them, I can blend in with them. I can sort of make chamber music without anything in the way. And that's a very exciting and very a, a big plus for me. But we have great fun playing it. We've done it in Munich and various other places, actually. Not the whole cycle. The whole cycle was in Munich. But we've done it other times. And do you find it becomes progressively more challenging as you go through them? But I find every piece I play gets more difficult rather than less difficult uh, through the years. Maybe because I see more in it. I don't know. But uh, nothing gets that much easier. And one of the questions I, I had was I noticed an, another thing that Cherney said about Beethoven's playing 
was that he sh shone particularly in strict legato execution of chords, thus constituting a new kind of song. And that was an interesting difference between Beethoven and Mozart. In fact, it's rumoured that, not more than rumoured, that Beethoven wasn't totally comfortable with Mozart's piano playing because of this question of legato. He found it choppy. And it's interesting because this question of legato somehow took over the generation and the playing afterwards, certainly by Liszt and Chopin, the great pianists afterwards, went completely to the way of legato playing. And in some way, that added to the feeling of a longer line. And this was a great musical change that Beethoven really affected, totally affected, not only his playing, but his way of looking at music. Yes, that's interesting, because of course he was himself playing Mozart, and it, it would be fascinating to, to have heard them both play yeah. the same piece. He must have been transforming those concertos, in a sense. I think everything he would play, he would transform. Um, I think you'd see a very, very big difference. Also, in the obvious amount of emotion. I mean, with Beethoven, uh, it really stares you in the face, the emotions. Whereas in Mozart, it's a little bit slightly in the background, I feel. And maybe that's um, just, it's there, but it's not as much in your face. And we know he was frustrated often with the, the forte pianos and the pianos of his time. Would you say that makes the modern Steinway an apt instrument, in, in a sense, to play these. Yeah, I think it is, from many standpoints, an apt instrument. It's the instrument of today. And therefore, you're more direct with the sound in terms of um, hearing it rather than being aware of the sounds. Uh, for me, that allows one to get closer to the ideas. That's why I play modern instruments. Uh, the sounds of the old instruments are very beautiful. I like how they work with strings and things like that, and the balances that have to be achieved are very beautiful. But they they take a special, I don't know, atmosphere and world where I don't want to concentrate on that. I want to concentrate on the structure. I want to concentrate on the emotions. I want to concentrate on those things that speak to us today. I'm Ben Eshmade. You've been listening to an Academy of St. Martin in the Fields podcast. That's about all we have time for, but as usual, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've heard. So please do get in touch via our official Facebook page or on Twitter at ASMF Orchestra using the hashtag ASMF podcast. You can hear Murray Pariah and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields performing Beethoven's piano concertos in Pariah Plays Beethoven at the London Barbican during the 2016 and 2017 season. If you wish to book tickets for these concerts, find out more about the Academy or support our work by joining the Academy Friends, please visit asmf.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>